If you would remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28, familiar resurrection passage, Matthew 28, the first 10 verses, following the reading of scripture, we will sing the Gloria Patri, which is printed for you in your bulletin. So Matthew 28, beginning at verse 1. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him, they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples... Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. God will add his blessing to this reading of his word. Amen. We have read one of the traditional accounts of the resurrection, and it's a passage full of hope and anticipation and encouragement for us on this particular Resurrection Sunday, but I want to direct your attention to another passage of Scripture, and so if you would turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to the end of the chapter. We have the message from our resurrected Lord, that's important for us to think. So Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 18. says, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. That even, that even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, 
But now he has promised once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I want to direct your attention this morning to the message of three mountains. Mount Sinai, Mount Calvary, and Mount Zion. Uh, Mount Sinai is clearly presented to us in this passage, and there's a message from it that we must hear. Mount Calvary is not given to us in this text, but we cannot go from the terror of verse 21 to the joy of verse 22 unless there be something to get us there in between. And then the third mountain, also clearly part of this passage, is Mount Zion. There are three messages that we need to hear. They bring to us the fullness of the gospel, and they help us to understand how we move from futility to peace and joy in the Lord. So the first message is the message from Mount Sinai. It's in verses 18 and 19, we see the conclusion of it in verse 21. Uh, Sinai, the message from Sinai was a fearful one. Sinai was a place where God had gathered his people, where he was giving to them the law. It was a place where they would see the majestic glory of Almighty God and they would be confronted by their own sinfulness. And it was a mountain that could be touched. It was a mountain that was smoking that was full of darkness, gloom, and storm, a trumpet's blast, and a voice that was so terrifying that people said, I don't want to hear anymore. And even Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, said, I am trembling with fear. Well, what is it about the message of that mountain that is terrifying? It's a message of judgment. It's a message of condemnation. It's a message of guilt. The message of the mountain is the fulfillment or the the application of what Ezekiel would later say, the soul that sins, it shall die. It's a reminder of the fact that if we keep on sinning, we only have a fearful expectation of the judgment of Almighty God. And Paul said that's the role of the law was to confront us with our guilt. He says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The message of Sinai is a fearful message, but it's so significant a one for us. We must hear. We must listen to it. It must speak to our hearts Take root in us out of the majesty of God, out of his unapproachable glory. We are stricken with the realization that uh, you are guilty. And you are deservedly under God's judgment. He demands a perfection that you can never attain on your own. And if we ignore the message of Sinai... 
then we will have no path to find the solution to that issue to ever reach Zion. So we have to hear the message of Mount Sinai. The second mountain is the mountain of Calvary. And here you could turn in your Bibles to first, keep, keep Hebrews in hand, but turn to 1 Corinthians 1.18. Again, not specifically mentioned in the Hebrews passage, but it's how we get from the terror of Mount Sinai to the glory of Mount Zion. And the summary statement of the message of Mount Calvary is in verse 18, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of Calvary is the message of the cross. As Paul will say in a few verses, we preach Christ crucified. It's the message of what is our, the hope of our redemption. Remember, Peter says to us, uh, you were not redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. You were not redeemed with precious things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. Uh, He will say he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. It's by his wounds you are healed. For Paul, this was the focal point It's not that he didn't teach God's people other things, but this is what he wanted to know. If you look at chapter 2, verse 2, he says, I am resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the message of this mountain is also important to hear because it's through this message, it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the message of what brings us Redemption and peace. It's what brings us forgiveness through the blood of Christ. And so the message of Calvary is the solution for our sin. So we have to begin in listening to the message of Sinai and being gripped with our need. But then we need to hear the message of Calvary that our only hope is in the cross of Christ. And by means of that, and by embracing that and believing that, then we come to Mount Zion, which is, we're back in Hebrews, the glorious place that the resurrected people will be, a glorious place of hope. It's an amazing, wonderful future hope and a present possession that you have. And there are many different elements of this of the benefits that we have in coming to Mount Zion that I want to highlight for you. Matthew Henry says we can kind of divide them into two groupings. The first groupings are the heavenly places. The second grouping, the longer of the two, is heavenly society that God puts us with. But there in verse 22, we pick it up after Mount Sinai. We says, but you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You and I are fortunate, most of us, to have very fine homes in which we live in. There are some people whose homes, and perhaps one you lived in, needed some extra repair. But we have a glorious dwelling place 
that Christ is providing for us. And you remember Jesus' words to the disciples in the upper room in John 14. He said to them, let not your hearts be troubled. In my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. So that I will come again to take you to be where I am. We have this glorious dwelling place that our resurrected Savior is preparing for us. And then he goes on, the writer goes on to list a number of different things, seven things, seven elements to this heavenly society that he puts us among. The first one is we come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. We know from earlier in Hebrews that the angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. But here they're part of the assembly that is before the throne of God, praising and exalting him. And when we reach Zion, we join their throne. Now, we're not going to be fascinated by the angels. It's not like we're going to look at them and they're, they're going to captivate our attention. We know that when we get to glory, there's one person who will captivate our attention, and that's Christ. We often talk about and say, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask this question. The reality is when you get to heaven, you're not going to have any questions. (laughs) Except one, where's Jesus? And one of our hymns uh, that is so wonderful helps us to appreciate that. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I shall not gaze at glory, but on the King of grace. Not at the crown he gifteth, but at his pierced hands. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. So that's what we'll be focused on, but we have as company this thousands upon thousands of angels and joyful assembly. We also come to the church of the firstborn, to those whose names are written in heaven. Here we have a reflection of Jesus as the head of the church and his people from ages past, current ages, ages in the future. Those gathered in glory. And when you and I worship here, in this place, we are joined in worship with all of God's people gathered, not only worldwide, but in glory. Uh, With the church triumphant with the church that's glorified there it's what part of what we mean in the in the creed where we believe in one holy catholic church we're joined with them we're worshiping with them we get to experience that to a degree now and in glory we'll have it far far richer the third element is you have come to god the judge of all men now, it might be tempting to say, why in the world does he bring back God, God the judge again? Didn't we have enough of that with Mount uh, Sinai? But it's important in re- to recognize the character of God and why uh, he's God our judge. And I think it communicates a couple things for us as we come to worship him. <clears throat> One is it gives God's people comfort. 
and confidence. Because we know that God the judge will, he will deal with all injustice. He will deal with all evil. He will take care of all that. And we, when we worship him, we worship the one who is authority and power. He is the judge. And it also helps characterize our worship with reverence. Uh, later on, the last verse, is, our God is a consuming fire, so therefore we should worship him in reverence and in awe. So knowing God's our judge gives us confidence, gives us hope uh, in, in his great purposes and his great work. The fourth thing is we come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. <clears throat> Here the focus is not so much just on believers in general, um, uh, those in heaven and those on earth, but here specifically, the believers that have already gone on to be with the Lord. And when we come to Zion, we are coming to them. It's a great reminder and encouragement that our loved ones who have gone on are absent from us physically, but they're not absent from us spiritually. And I don't mean any kind of mystical thing like you're hearing them speak or whatever. I'm just saying the memory of them and the spiritual connection we have with those in glory is powerful. And it transforms our earthly worship connected with their worship and glory. We come to the fifth one, the last three. Um, perhaps the best of all, you come in the fifth case to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. What a glorious person we come to. He's the focal point. He's the one that provided the way. He's the one that paid the penalty. Um, Moses was the mediator in the old covenant and he trembled with fear. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is now the one who gives us confidence and boldness to come to the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. We are united to him. He is in us and we are in him. And Jesus as the mediator speaks from God to men and from men to God. He's the one that brings us together. The uh, sixth thing is that he, we come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The sprinkled blood is the blood of, the, uh, of, of Jesus Christ. The idea of the sprinkled blood is a very significant element in all Old Testament worship. In the ongoing animal sacrifices that went on throughout all of the Old Covenant. And Jesus has come, his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Obviously trying to draw our attention to the blood of Christ and its significance. <clears throat> well, what does he mean by speaking about the blood of Abel? Well, there's two things it could mean. One is it could mean the blood that, of the sacrifice that Abel offered to God. You have the account in Genesis chapter 4. At the appointed time, Cain and Abel came to the presence of God, each bringing a sacrifice. And Abel brought the lamb from the flock as his sacrifice. Cain brought the fruit of his labors in the ground 
as his sacrifice. Now, now there's nothing in and of itself horrible about a grain sacrifice. Later on in the law, God will require that of Israelites at certain times. But, and we know that the reason Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's sacrifice was not accepted, we know that a key element of the fact that Cain's sacrifice wasn't accepted was because he, from Hebrews 11, because he didn't have faith. But I think it's very likely that Abel and Cain were taught from their parents, Adam and Eve, from youngest child, that when you come to approach God in worship, you bring a sacrifice and it needs to be a blood sacrifice. God had already demonstrated this when Adam and Eve had sinned and they tried to cover their nakedness and they couldn't do it. How did God cover their nakedness? He slew a sacrifice. He offered a sacrifice and by the shedding of blood, he covered the sinful nakedness of Adam and Eve. And so the principle of a blood sacrifice was very significant, even in those early days. When Abel and Cain came before God, Abel brought the blood sacrifice, Cain did not. Well, that blood sacrifice of animals continued throughout the Old Covenant. And we know from Hebrews, he tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. And so the blood of Jesus' sacrifice is greater and it speaks a better word. The, the word of the animal sacrifices is it's not enough. The word of Christ's sacrifice, sacrificial blood, is uh, that it pays, it pays once and for all for the sins we've committed. So that's one thing he could be referring to with the blood of Abel. But I think it's another thing. It's the blood of his, the personal blood of Abel that was shed. And I think we glean this again from the event in Genesis chapter 4. God had already warned Cain Don't follow the path of sin. But he did. And he killed his brother. And he shed his blood. And then God comes to interview, interrogate Cain. And the first thing he does demonstrates still God's great compassion trying to get Cain to repent. And he asks Cain, where is your brother? Cain refused to repent. Instead, he took his place in the scorn of the ungodly. Uh, remember the, the um, uh, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. Cain sat down in the seat of the scornful and responds to God and he says, Am I, I don't know, where, am I my brother's keeper? He was saying, God, aren't you the keeper of Israel? Aren't you the one to watch over your people? Have you lost one? You don't know where he is? And he was, Cain was scorning Almighty God. And then God's response to Cain is, 
Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And there was a message in Abel's blood. And what was the message in Abel's blood? The message in Abel's blood was for judgment, was for vengeance, was for a curse to come upon the ungodly. It's the same as we see in Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 with the souls under the altar that had been martyred in that first century and they cry out to God, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? And Abel's blood cries out for vengeance. It cries out for judgment. cries out for cursing. But the sprinkled blood speaks a better word. What is the word that blood speaks? Mercy. Forgiveness. Grace. Reconciliation. The removal of the curse of sin and the bringing in of the peace of sins forgiven. And so the blood, the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel because it calls for grace on us. The last thing that we come to, it's brought up a little later in verse 28, we come to an unshakable kingdom. God is going to shake the earth and also the heavens, but you and I have come to a, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And you and I have the reminder that we have a sure and certain hope. Uh, our world here is shaken all the time. And we are often at our wit's end. But our hope is not in this world that can be and is shaken. But our hope is in the kingdom that Christ has prepared for us. It cannot be shaken. Nothing can thwart God's plan. Nothing can prevent God's purposes from being fulfilled. And you and I have that hope. As we come to Mount Zion, the blessedness of all of these things. <clears throat> and the, 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 the message to us or the encouragement to us, the appeal to us is, are, have we listened to these messages? Have we heard the message of Sinai? Have we heard and embraced the message of Calvary? Have we heard and do we hope in the message of Zion? And the appeal is, we need to listen. We need to hear. It's where verse 25 gives us that urging. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? So, beloved, hear the messages of the three mountains. And may you trust in the risen Lord and follow him. And may God in his mercy allow you to experience the hope and the peace and the joy of a kingdom that cannot and will not be shaken. Amen.
Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the rich truth of your word that brings us from darkness, doom, and gloom, and futility to hope and peace through the work of Christ and through the kingdom that he has planned for us from before the foundation of the world. May you, O Lord, help us to listen to what you've told us and so walk in your uh, grace and peace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.